All right. I didn't get a chance to say this to you because I, was, uh, I wasn't here last Sunday. So, Happy New Year. 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 Good to see all of you here. Uh, some of you, this is a New Year's resolution for you to get back to church. So it's good to see some of you uh, that are here, as well as those that I see uh, many of the weeks uh, here joining us. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13. You say, oh my goodness, you guys are, we're still in Mark? Yes, we're still in Mark. It is a New Year's resolution, though, for me to finish uh, the gospel of Mark, so you can hold me to that. Committed to finishing uh, by Easter. Okay, so we will finish by Easter, Lord willing, Uh, but it's been just a great study. I hope as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you've learned so much about who Jesus is, why he came, why that's relevant to our life and our world in which we exist today. And uh, Mark chapter 13 is no, uh, no easy task that we have before us. So I'm gonna dig in, we're gonna be in Mark 13 for the next four weeks in a series that we're calling Sign of the Times. So uh, let's dig in. Without further ado, Mark 13, starting in verse 1. You can follow along. We'll have it on the screen. Jesus was leaving the temple. One of his disciples said, look, teacher, look what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You see these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am him, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. December 21st. 2012. Does that date mean anything to you? No? (laughs) Well, 10 years later, most of us have probably forgotten um, what happened on that day, or maybe we weren't paying much attention if we were living it at the time. But during this time, this was supposed to be the date that the world ended. Yeah, you missed it, everybody. Still here. Yeah, yeah. Well, why was this supposed to be the date? Well, it was the date that the Mayan calendar ended. And there were many groups of people, most of them on the internet, uh, many groups of people predicting the end of the world. And the internet was abuzz with evidence like hurricanes and unrest in the Middle East and solar flares. And do you remember the, the mysterious planets that were about to collide during that time? Hollywood got on the bandwagon. They produced a movie called 2012. This is the the, uh, poster for it. We were warned. Warned. Be careful. There were doomsday parties out in the desert. Uh, There were some fanatics up on a mountain in South France awaiting a UFO to pick them up on this date. There was enough of a stir that according to Reuters Global Poll during that time, about 10% of the population 
was nervous about this date. Of course, December 21st, 2012 came and went just as every other wrong prediction in history and life went on. And I tell this because it's good to, it's just kind of nice and comforting to know, I guess misery loves company, that Christians aren't, crazy Christians aren't the only people who make ridiculous uh, end of the world claims. We're in good company with lots of groups of people around the world. See, sadly, Christians have, we sort of have an awkward history when it comes to this kind of stuff, when it comes to awkward uh, false predictions, doomsday prepping, getting all worked up into a frenzy about all things end times. Uh, Since we have a Baptist heritage, I'll pick on Baptists. Um, Pastor William Miller predicted Jesus would return and the end of the world would come March 21st, 1844. And he got his congregation together and lots of people in the town and people came all over the place to come to the church to have a prayer vigil and remember and, and prepare themselves. And then, you know, well, they weren't going down and looking here. I guess they were looking at their watches in some way. And, uh, you know, 1150 and 1158 and 1159 and, yeah, didn't happen. Everybody had to sort of sheepishly go back to their towns. But he continued to predict, no, 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 I had it wrong. Calculations were off April 18th, 1844. And so they called everyone back in. Sell your possessions. Get ready. Here it comes. It didn't come. And then his follower, Samuel Snow, said, no, 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 no. My my pastor got it wrong. Here's the real date, October 22nd, 1844. And well, you kind of know the drill at that point. Each time many uh, kind of upended their life and then had to figure out how to keep going again. The 20th century was filled with all kinds of predictions and Lots of ink spilled on books predicting all kinds of end times. Even Calvary Chapel founder Chuck Smith, who I appreciate a lot of his work, uh, made bold predictions about 1981. Um, Writer Hal Lindsey made a lot of money off of predicting wrongly 1980. And then then he came up with a book 10 years later about 1990. Neither worked. Harold Camping, which I heard somebody speak about him uh, 2011 predicted the end of the world. And, and, you know, the list goes on. We could be here all day talking about this. We have a penchant, a curious obsession with the apocalypse and the end of the world. Now, I want to add a little bit of balance to this. I grew up in the 90s. I grew up with all this stuff. I grew up with a lot of it in my own household. And so I'm kind of like, I have an allergy to all of this stuff, okay? But, but to be fair, Listen, studying and meditating on and being prepared for Christ's return is a worthwhile endeavor for the Christian. In fact, the Bible talks about over 300 times the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's no small amount of text talking about this. Entire books of the Bible were dedicate, are dedicated to this. Book of Revelation, portions of Daniel and portions of 2 Thessalonians. Jesus here in his longest teaching in the entire gospel, at least a portion of his dedicated to end times. So it is a worthwhile endeavor. A healthy perspective on end times encourages us to, to be hopeful and to persevere and know that this world is not the end. And so there's good things about it. And so my goal throughout these four weeks is to present a balanced approach 
to give a biblical perspective. And the way that we want to try to get this perspective is by studying Jesus's perspective. Because after all, whatever Jesus's perspective is, we should probably try to align with that. Seem fair? You guys with me? Go like this if you're with me. Yeah? Okay, good. So let's move forward with this. Now, I want to frame this whole conversation over the next four weeks um, with some preliminary comments about how we want to approach this. And the first one is this. We want to approach this with, with humility. We want to approach with humility. As you start reading through Mark 13, you realize very quickly this is one of the most uh, difficult and perplexing interpretive passages in all of the Bible. And if any commentary you open up, you're probably going to get a different interpretation of this section of Mark 13, which might be, uh, you know, leave you a little bit confused or fearful. Of, oh my goodness, well, how can we possibly understand this? Well, we want to take a humble posture as we approach this. One of our core values as a church is that we are a Bible-centered church, graciously orthodox, graciously orthodox. And here's what we mean by that. Here's a little paragraph that's tied to that. God's word is our guide, our authority, our conscience on everything. We stand firm where it stands firm. We remain flexible where it remains flexible. We value diversity of opinions and thought on secondary theological matters. Much of what we're going to talk about in Mark 13 is our secondary theological matters. And that means that we don't all have to agree. You, you could be on one side, I might be on another, right? You, you, or you could be just completely unsure and you're just, I don't know. Say, I'm a pan-millennialist. Well, what's that? I think it's all going to pan out in the end, okay? Many of you are there. That's fine, all right? Wherever we are, it's okay on these secondary theological matters to, to uh, you know, not all agree. So take a humble approach. Second, we want to approach it with discernment. We want to avoid two extremes. On one hand, interpretive anarchy. Interpretive anarchy is to say, well, well, here's what this text means to me. Where, where everybody opens a text, and based on your own presuppositions, your own desires of your heart, what, whatever you want to make the text say, you just make it say whatever you're feeling in that moment. Right? We want to avoid that extreme. On the other extreme, we want to avoid interpretive tyranny. That is to sort of turn off our mind and say, well, nobody can understand this, or at least I can't, so let me turn on like the loudest voice uh, on, on TV. Let me search for the, the, you know, the loudest voice on YouTube or, or whatever, right? And, and make that out to be the end-all, be-all of an interpretation. We want to avoid that kind of tyranny in the text. This is the principle that we're going to use throughout our time together and it's, it's not mine, it's from Alistair Begg, Pastor Alistair Begg, who says this, keep the plain things, the main things, and the main things, the plain things. All right, so that's, that's what we're going to do. For example, in Mark 13, here are some main and plain things that pretty much all Bible experts agree on, that there's a portion of what Jesus is going to teach here that has something to do with the temple in Jerusalem during Jesus' day or shortly after Jesus' day, at seven, in 70 AD, and that there's a portion of this text that has something to do with, with things that are yet to come, that have not yet been fully fulfilled. Now, pretty much everyone agrees on that. The nuance is, well, which, which go to which? And, and is it some of it both and? And that's 
where we're going to try to discern that. But we're going to be focused on the main and plain things. Thirdly, our approach is going to be one as a disciple. Not as a scholar, not as an academic. We're not going to be predicting dates. We're not going to be using math equations to figure out when things are going to happen. Why? Well, because I think Jesus' teaching here is primarily focused on what are we going to do to live today? How does this affect our lives today? He's warning us. He's helping us to be prepared and ready to be focused on the mission at hand and not get distracted. We're not going to be trying to predict dates. By the way, as we read in Mark 13, Jesus didn't even know the date when all of this would happen. So what, <laughs> why do you think you're going to know? Um, he gave this teaching to build resilient disciples in his day and to re- build us into resilient disciples today. When the heat gets turned up, when life seems chaotic, when the world seems like it's upside down, how do we live? That's what he's focused on. That's what we want to be focused on, okay? So with all of that said, let's dig into uh, the verses. Like, man, we spent like 10 minutes and we haven't even hit this yet. How long is this thing going to go? Don't worry, we'll, we'll get there, all right? This is the first message I'm calling a time to be calm, a time to be calm. Now, remember where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the middle of Passion Week. Just a, a couple of days from now, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane where he gets arrested and the trial begins. So things are turned up. Jesus just gets done with a conflict with the religious leaders in the temple courts, and as they're on their way out of the temple courts, we pick up in verse 1 in chapter 13. Jesus was leaving the temple, and one of his disciples said, teacher, look, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, and they were absolutely right. This temple and the temple mount, which was built by Herod the Great, was magnificent. It was Splendid. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that the exterior of the building, quote, lacked nothing that could astonish either the soul or the eyes. He also goes on to say that the stones of this temple were 25 cubits long. A cubit was about, about the size of my arm, okay? 25 cubits long, eight cubits high. 12 cubits wide. I mean, you can picture how massive these stones were. The stones were ornate, inlaid with gold, so that they would glisten as the sun came over the temple mount. Beautiful, dazzling. And as dazzling as it all looked, it was even more dazzling in its religious significance. And we need to understand that as we look at this text. Because for the disciples... The temple was the epicenter of their entire Jewish universe, of their faith, of their religion, of their daily way of life. Everything was tied to this temple, which made Jesus' next words shocking. Verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, you need to imagine the, the shock and the horror and the disbelief and the expressions of the disciples as they would have heard Jesus say that. I mean, it would have been the same of somebody who, 
who was about to take a trip on the Titanic, heard a, a prediction that the, temp, the, the Titanic, you know, the unsinkable ship, was going to go down in the icy waters. Would just would not believe it. Shock. Or that the Twin Towers would be a, a, just a, a heap of rubble and dust. Hard to believe. It's the same shock, horror, and disbelief that the disciples would have had hearing that the great temple would come down. And yet, this is exactly what would happen. Historically, we know within 40 years of Jesus saying this, in 70 AD, the Roman armies swept through Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem. Roman general Titus stood in the temple, burning it to the ground, and in fact, pushing every single rock, breaking them, pushing them off the temple mount down into the valley below. If you, in fact, if you come on the Holy Land trip in October, we're going to be there from October 10th to the 20th. You can actually get a little pamphlet out in the, um, at the welcome desk if you're interested in that trip. But we will stand. Actually, let me show you a picture of it. We will stand on these rocks. These are excavated rocks uh, that, that are all broken up that came from the temple. They were excavated just a few years ago down in the valley filled with layers and layers of dirt and rubble. That were, that were found. These are the very rocks that, were, that the temple would have uh, been built from. It's amazing to consider the accuracy of Jesus' statement and just how shell-shocked the disciples would have been to hear and consider this notion. So it's on their minds as they leave the temple mount, as they travel down into the Kidron Valley, up into the Garden of Gethsemane and up onto the Mount of Olives. This would have been on their minds, couldn't wait to ask Jesus more information about everything that he's saying. And that's why we get to verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now, the setting of this conversation, as I said, is on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. Let me show you a picture of, the, of, of what this would have looked like. Now, this is a, this is a model. Right, that's not real. You see the gate, the cast iron gate right there. But it's a full-scale model of what they believe that the temple and the surrounding area would have looked like at the time of Jesus. Okay? So this is what you're looking at here in front of you. In fact, this is the the point of view that Jesus and his disciples would have had from the Mount of Olives looking at the temple. This is what Jesus is looking at as he shares these words. And so the disciples are asking this question, when's all this going to happen? What are the signs? Now to get a fuller picture of this, we need to look at Matthew's um, gospel, Matthew 24, verse 3, to really get the essence of what the disciples are after, where Matthew says, here's how the conversation went, tell us when this is going to happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You, you see that? You see what's going on here? The disciples were not just asking, when is the temple going to be destroyed? They're also assuming that when the temple is destroyed, that that's going to be the end of the world. Well, why would they think that? Well, in their minds, the destruction of the temple is the cataclysmic event that is going to usher in the end of the world. I mean, that is the center of the universe. So if that gets destroyed, surely Jesus is going to come back and ever, the end times are going to kick off, right? 
This is, this is in their mind. They're attaching these two things. So they're saying, Jesus, if the end of the world is coming, tell us what to expect. When's it going to happen? What should we be looking for? Please tell us. Right? That's, going, that's what's going on. Give us some indication. To which Jesus replied, verse 5, watch out. Watch out that no one deceives you. Notice that Jesus' first intent, his, what he's interested in doing, is not giving them signs of the end times. This is not what his focus is. In fact, in the beginning, it's the very opposite of that. He, he wants them to know what not to be paying attention to. And he says, watch out. Now, this is an interesting Greek word. It's one word, and it essentially means this, to take in information with a calm discerning posture, to take in information with a calm and discerning posture. This is what Jesus says. Watch out. Be careful. Essentially, this is what he's saying. Be careful that you don't get taken. Be careful that you don't, you don't get all caught up and distracted. Be careful that you're not so, you know, spun up and afraid and anxious and worried. Watch out that you don't get deceived about all this. In other words, he's saying, keep calm. Stay calm. You guys recognize or remember this? um, Does this look familiar to any of you? Keep calm and carry on. This little image. Now, the keep calm, it's been, you know, there's a bunch of other things that come after that now on T-shirts and memes. Keep calm and chive on and keep calm. and You know, just a hundred different variations of this. Any of you know the origin of where that came from? I get, to, I get to tell you guys something new that you don't know. Okay, this is fun. All right, so 1939, uh, the, the British government, um, a secret uh, agency, was coming up with pro- propaganda slogans just in case Germany attacked uh, and invaded their country during World War II. And this was one of their slogans. Their goal with this slogan, they were going to have posters all over the place, is that when the, the Germans invade, stay calm, continue your way of life, you know, don't sell everything and move, go to the mountains and, you know, don't freak out. Why? Well, we, we need some stability. <laughs> we need to still have stability in the midst of wartime. Now, that never happened, and so these posters never got made. Years went by. 20 years ago, some bookkeepers rediscovered the original blueprints for these posters and disseminated them all over online, which is why over the last 20 years you've seen the keep calm with, you know, the crown symbol. That's where it came from. This is essentially, I think, what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, keep calm and carry on. Don't freak out. Don't be deceived. Keep your feet firmly planted in the truth. Now, what are some of the ways that he wants them to be calm? I think there's three things he looks at in verses 6 to 8. He says, many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Keep calm, we might say, in the midst of messianic confusion or prophetic confusion. People are going to try to pretend they're me, or they're going to come and try to speak for me and prophesy about all kinds of things. Be careful. Don't be deceived. You stay grounded. You be discerning. 
The second thing, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come, still in the distance. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is saying here, keep calm in the midst of political confusion. When the world seems like it's going to be turned upside down, when there's nuclear threats, when there's rumors of invasions, keep calm. This is not the end yet. He continues, the end of verse 8, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines, saying keep calm in the midst of climate confusion. All kinds of natural disasters are going to happen. Don't get off the mission. Don't get distracted by all this. Keep calm. He says all of these things are like the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. They're not the end. They're the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've never experienced birth pains. Just making sure you're paying attention up here. I've never experienced it. But I have uh, been uh, witness to uh, this two times, uh, the, the birth pains. Um, some of you are familiar with what's called Braxton Hicks contractions. Right? Braxton Hicks contractions. They're sort of false contractions. And sometimes... Um, New parents, you know, will start feeling something. Oh, this is it. Call the husband. Quick, come on. We, gra- we, you know, we grab our bags. You head to the hospital, and you're there. It's okay, this is the end. You're sending it out. You know, here it comes, everybody. You know, pictures. Blah, blah. And then the doctor's like, no, no, no. You're still a long way out. You, you go back home. Hang out. You're good for a little while. You know, these, these are the false ones. These are not the true ones. I, and so, you know, sort of embarrassingly, awkwardly, you have to you know, go back to your car, you go back home. Sorry, everybody, false alarm, right? See, some of you have been there. You've experienced that. Um, I, actually, I think that this is what Jesus is talking about here. I actually don't think he's talking about the actual contractions. I think he's talking about Braxton Hicks contractions. He, you know, wasn't called that, but that medical phenomenon was around in Jesus' day. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. They're the false signs. Don't get distracted by them. All these things need to happen. It's okay. And so I think this is what Jesus is saying. Now, this is as far as we want to go in the text today. In the coming weeks, we're going to start to see Jesus tell us, okay, here's what to look for. Here are the true signs, and we'll, we'll look at that. But this opening point is so essential for the disciples in their day. It's so essential for us in our day to develop resiliency in following Jesus Christ. And the reason is, well, let me ask you this question. Is anything unique about these three false signs that Jesus gives them in 30 AD? Is anything unique that just happened in Jesus' day? No, not a one. Not a single thing. They're all the same today. Is there any messianic or prophetic confusion today? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of it. There's people who claim to be Christ today. I did a Google search, found like top 10 people living today that claim to be Christ. And some of them, some of them have literally thousands of followers and some, you know, just a handful of people on the internet. But it's, it's amazing. How many, are there people that, claim to 
speak prophetically on behalf of Jesus Christ and have been wrong? Yeah. Many spreading fear and misinformation and speculation about dates, attaching themselves to political leaders and future events, wrongly predicting outcomes of elections? Oh, yeah. How about political confusion? Any of that today? Any wars and rumors of wars? Any nations against nations? Just a few over the last 2,000 years, you know, if you're keeping count. Yeah. How about, is there any climate confusion? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Hurricanes, mudslides, extreme weather events, according to my AccuWeather app, there's an extreme weather event about to happen at any given time, sending me notifications. I had to turn them off. The ozone layer being depleted. I, heard, I don't know if people still talk about that. That was big when I was, I was growing up. Ozone. Always worried about the ozone. Polar ice caps melting, global warming, meteors on their way, human extinction. Yes, all of this is around. So we can, it's easy to understand why Christians today, just as it would have been for the disciples in Jesus' day, to get anxious, to get fearful, to get distracted from their mission, to be focused on all of these things. Think, oh, now's the time. It must be the time, and i got to do an internet search, and I'm going to get all down this conspiracy theory route on this, and maybe this is going to happen, and get all wound up about all of this. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, keep calm and carry on with the mission I've given you. I'm in charge. You see that crown? That's King Jesus. He's in charge. He's sovereign in control. Don't get obsessed with this. Don't build your bunker yet. All right? Don't build your life on looking for the next sign or conspiracy. Because here's what I've seen happen. As people start to dabble in this and go down this route, it's like a soul-sucking vortex of time. Most of it wasted time. You'll never get back. And here's the other thing. People see what they want to see. Has that ever happened to you? You get caught up with some of the, the, the election uh, prophecies. You saw all the signs. You saw it. You thought you, you had it nailed. Oh, wait. Oh, we were wrong. Be careful. Keep calm. Carry on. Don't be distracted. Stay above the fray because it will lead you astray. Now, am I saying we should just plug our ears and, you know, la, 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 you know, bury my head, uh, nothing's happening in the world? No. No, that's part of the discernment. Am I saying that none of this has any merit? We should just turn our ears away from anything that even has a hint of prophecy? No, be discerning. Should we ignore climate change, ignore climate, you know, change and differences? No. Should we ignore potential threats to our human way of life? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, be careful it doesn't suck you in and steal your life. That's what I'm saying. That's not Jesus' posture. So why should it be ours? I want to give you an example of this from 2 Thessalonians. Because Paul addressed this very issue in the local church. This church in Thessalonica, while they had a lot of great things going for it, became obsessed with, preoccupied on end times. This is a church all about end times. They loved end times. They're looking for signs of end times. They're 
Well, I was going to say their Google search. You know, their version of that in the end times. And notice what was happening. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. Do not become easily unsettled or alarmed. They're getting unsettled. They're getting anxious. Verse 3. Do not be deceived in any way. They're getting caught up in false conspiracies. Chapter 3, verse 11. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. You're busy. You're not busy. You're busy bodies. You're spending a lot of time on the interwebs. It's not healthy. None of it is, is leading you to continue on the mission. So how does he encourage them? Listen to how he encourages them. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand firm, hold fast to our teachings. Chapter 3, 12 and 13, <laughs> I love this, settle down. Set, literally, settle down. Earn the food you eat. Never tire of doing what is good. This is what you're supposed to be focusing on. And so today, just in kind of in closing to this, if you are finding yourself preoccupied with world events, with internet rumors, with conspiracies, with environmental movements, in so-called prophetic, you know, beliefs about Jesus' return, speculative signs, allow the word of God to call you back to the main and plain things in your life, to keep calm and carry on in the mission. What should, we, what should we be doing? Carry on to fruitful work, to diligence with your hands, to employment and your job and taking care of your home and the people that you love. Carry on with the, the normal means of grace that God has given, the word, the study of the, and the commitment to the word of God, to prayer, to the fellowship of the saints, and church, meaningful church membership and attendance, to sharing the gospel with others, to demonstrate the good works of God. You want to know what to focus on? That's the stuff to focus on. Give a little slice of your time over here to that stuff. Little. This is the main and plain things that we're called to. Now, as we turn our attention to the, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion this morning. I want you to think about this, this question. How could Jesus say to keep calm in the midst of all the confusion and upheaval in the world? I mean, how is it that Jesus could just say, yeah, 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 you know, stay calm when the world seems like it's going to be coming to an end? The destruction of the temple is going to happen. When it, there's existential threats to our world. I mean, isn't all of this just sort of wishful thinking? Yeah, we can say, you can say on the Titanic, you know, keep calm, but it's still sinking. You know, like, how can Jesus say this? L listen to me. The reason that Jesus can tell us to keep calm is because Jesus faced down the greatest threat to humanity in the entire world. Jesus faced down death. Jesus faced down Satan. Jesus faced down the power of evil and hell. Jesus faced down the threat of God's just wrath against sin.
Jesus faced down the notion that we could be separated from him for eternity in a place called hell. He faced it down. He looked it in the eye. He says, I'm not afraid. I'm not distracted. Walking up the hill to Calvary, where with my body and my blood, I will face down forever all of hell and all of evil. And I'll do it for you. And he didn't just face it down. He didn't just go calmly to the cross. When he died there, he died with dignity because he conquered death. He conquered the greatest threat to our human existence. He reigns supreme and eternal. He holds, writer of Hebrews, he holds all things together through the power of his word. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It's that Jesus who says, calm down. Keep calm. It's okay. The world's going to end. Ah, Keep calm. My, my life is threatened. My job is threatened. Keep calm. Pandemics, outbreaks, global warming. Keep calm. I'm in control. I've conquered the greatest threat to human existence. This is what we celebrate in, in the communion together. We celebrate the reality that he defeated death and hell, and he did it with his body and his blood for you. I would like to invite the band to come back up on the platform, and as they do, just take a moment to meditate, to consider this reality for your life. Confess anything, any unbelief in your heart, any hardness of your heart, any anxieties or fears in your heart, any distraction in your heart to him as we prepare for the Lord's Supper together.